From the hidden compartments of the Millennium Falcon, it's the DigiGuy. Now here's two former sanitation workers at Starkiller Base, Wade Major and Mark Iver. All right, Corey, good to have you back, too. Who sent that in? That was sent in by Stuart Moncure, who will always be the Poe to my Finn. Oh. Corey's so good with those with those Star Wars-y references. He is. Yes, he is. Kids love the Star Wars. So that being said, uh, tomorrow are the Oscars. We're recording, the Oscars. We're recording this the day before the Oscars. Uh, got any predictions? What a shame La La Land got totally shut out. <laughs> I mean, zero for 14. What are the odds? Wow. Wade, you never would have predicted that. I, uh, I am still hanging with my predictions that it's going to probably win 10. I think that sound award, I think it's going to win 10. It's going to tie West Side Story. It'll be just one behind uh, Lord of the Rings, Titanic, and Ben-Hur. And uh, that puts it in pretty elite company, and that's going to really piss a lot of people off. But even if it wins nine, it's guaranteed to win eight. I don't see it getting less than eight. I don't. So Even Lord of the Rings, you're like, Ugh. I know, that should Look, Lord of the Rings, Titanic didn't deserve 11. Ben-Hur deserved 11. Sure. And West Side Story deserved 10. And Well, and, Lord of the Rings won 11. I'll tell you why Lord of the Rings won 11. Because it's like, oh, my gosh, we thank God this series is over now. No, you know what it was? <laughs> I, my theory is that I think that, I think that the Academy... The, the Academy honored New Line for literally spending three hundred million. They they mortgaged. They 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 literally bet it the was, entire company on that movie. On yeah, those, they did. On, on those movies. Did. And the fact did. is, it was a huge huge success. You know, Bob Shea just he just yeah. said, you know what? Here's my entire company riding on these films. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna just, I'm willing to just go down with this whole goddamn ship. And you know what? It was a total winner. <laughs> it was. And I think that the Academy kind of rewarded him for that they taking did. that gamble. They did. Absolutely, they did. There was no question. So it was that was a reward for the the series for the business decision everything else yeah I I still think uh, La La Land is going to get uh, the lion's share of everything it's going to probably wa- it's going to get at least eight could get as many as ten not going to get more than ten uh, if honestly if it gets more if it we, let's put it this way it, it's guaranteed eight could win nine I think it's going to win ten. But if it gets more than 10, it's not stopping at 11. If it gets more than 10, it's going to become the all-time top film ever with, with 12. That's terrible. It'll win 12. It can't do that. So it's, it's, either, it's either 8, 9, 10, or 12. It doesn't, there's no 11. There's no path to 11. It's, uh, it's 8, 9, 10, or 12. See, I think it's, it's going to be like at the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's, all, you know, there's never been a unanimous yeah. vote for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. And a lot of the reason that is is because nobody wants there to be one. Because, you know, if Babe Ruth didn't get 100% and yeah. Lou Gehrig didn't get 100%, then Mariano Rivera is not going to get 100%. I, so there's always one baseball writer yeah. who will just say no to Mariano Rivera or somebody obvious just because they want to deny them 100%. What's going to happen is there'll be one category yeah. where everybody says, man, we can't give this thing 14 Oscars, can we? <laughs> Let's all just, like, gather together but and not no give one, it something. It can still win uh you know, 12 Oscars without any individual voting for it 12 times. You know, the, 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 the numbers will work out if, if you have enough people. It's just so popular with every single group. Uh, the Writers Guild didn't give it a, an award. They gave it to Moonlight. But, however, Moonlight was considered an original screenplay for the purposes of the Writers Guild. Uh, it's an adapted screenplay here. So... Um, I thought that was interesting. I expected Manchester to get the adapt the the uh, the origin the um uh, the uh, adapted uh, award for um 
for uh, the Writers Guild, but it didn't. Arrival did. So the question now becomes who will – Moonlight, I think, is probably going to win adapted for Oscar. Who's going to win original? That's a, a bigger question that I think is very, very interesting. You realize that this conversation uh, will be obsolete the it's moment totally obsolete. after – Yeah, I know. It's obsolete the second the people are listening to this. So. You, you know what's never obsolete? This huh. week's food. Oh, you're going to okay. feed me? Thank goodness, okay. please. Now, are you ready? Yes. Should I tell you what it is now or should I yeah. tell you what it is when I give it to you? Give it, uh, tell me what it is when you give it to me. Okay. I'll start off. I'll hit some docs. By the way, I think – Yes. By the way, what I'm going to give you, yeah. I think, in my opinion, freaking delicious. But okay. I'm curious to see what you think. Okay. Very good. So uh, we got a really, really, really good doc here by a filmmaker named Nicholas Geierhalter. It's called Homo Sapiens. Uh, Homo Sapiens is such an odd, interesting, strange, compelling, cool – uh, artsy doc. It, it is. It, it's sort of. It, it's apocalyptic in a in a way, but it's also very reassuring. Uh, and the question is, what you know, if and when that time comes that we get into that sort of not even a post-apocalyptic but post-human era, um, what will be left, and uh, how will anyone sort of know that we were here? And uh, this is kind of this weird. Uh, hypothetical look at uh, what humanity would be or what would be left of us if um, in that some future scenario when everything was gone. Really, really interesting. Super cool. Um, This was made in Austria, uh, and uh, so it has a certain kind of Austrian pessimism to it. If you know anything about Austrian movies, they're a little bit tweaked. They're kind of, you know, they're they're like the Korea of of Europe, Uh, and that's why we get, you know, filmmakers like... um, well, you know, that's why we get why we get, why we get the filmmakers who make the movies from Austria that we do. Uh anyway, uh really interesting movie and uh I I think it's uh, it's definitely worth checking out Homo Sapiens. From PBS, we have Alzheimer's Every Minute Counts. Uh I have gone two tours with uh, as caregiver for for relatives who suffer from dementia. Alzheimer's, of course, is the mother of all dementias, and uh, it is a really, really important thing to be aware of. Any of us uh, could become a caregiver at any given point, and you never, just never know. You never know who it's going to hit. Uh, so Alzheimer's Every Minute Counts is all about what this does to us, to society, to individuals, to families, the costs, uh, the remedies, the, the ways of coping. It's a really, really good documentary. I highly recommend it. Uh, saving M- uh, Einak. I just brutalized that title. Um, but the in any case, this is uh, a, a really interesting archaeological doc from Icarus that is about a uh, an Afghan archaeologist who is uh, trying to save a site in Afghanistan before it is destroyed. And uh, it, this is not a Taliban thing. It's not the Taliban who are going to destroy this site. It's not, uh, you know, religious fanaticism or neglect. It's the Chinese. The Chinese have a mining company that uh, need, they, they, they want to they start digging copper out of the earth. And because they are going to do that, they are going to put a serious archaeological treasure at risk. Uh, and that is what, is, uh, what this is all about. And the Taliban play a part in this. But it is, uh, it you know, it's a it's a very it's an upsetting film, and um, if you if you love ancient treasures and archaeological digs as much as I do, you you'll you'll probably want to watch this. It's very, it's it's upsetting. 
It's upsetting. It makes you wonder how much of our stuff we lose every year. You know what's not upsetting? What's not upsetting? What I'm about to give you. Okay. One more doc here, and then I'll, I'll, let you, I'll unleash you on that. Um, look at us now, mother. That's the name of the doc. This is by uh, Gail Kirschenbaum. And uh, it's, very, it's one of those personal docs, one of those personal uh, family docs. I, uh, I reviewed this on radio. And it, this is essentially a um, – it's like a home movie. And Gail Kirschenbaum, who is a very successful documentary producer and television producer and, and uh, you know, has, has long credentials, she basically wanted to make her, her own documentary about her relationship with her mother. And it is an amazing look through family archival materials and through very personal relationships of a dysfunctional family, very Jewish American family, but also a very just mainstream American family, uh, forgetting about all of the showbiz and ethnic issues and regional issues. Um, it, it, there's, there's a bit of everybody's family in here, and it is funny and, and, and heartbreaking all at the same time and a really, really interesting doc. And uh, it was nice to rediscover this again because I liked it when I saw it for radio. Watching it again, I realized I liked it even more. Look at Us Now, Mother, by Gail Kirschenbaum. Um, really, really interesting, uh, interesting doc on family. Actually, Mark just split again, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna toss Hi. one. What? Okay. Uh, I wanted to make it just a little bit warm. Now, here's okay. the thing: after all okay. this, um, after all this buildup, yeah, I, I bet you've even probably had this before. Yeah. So I have a French girlfriend. Yes. And we were talking on Skype because that's what yeah. we do because she lives seven thousand miles away, and uh, she, we were talking about food. She's French. That means she likes to uh, cook yeah. and bake and whatnot. So she says, have you ever had pesto cake? Pesto cake? I said, pesto cake? He goes, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a savory cake. It's not like a sweet cake. Right. It's not like chocolate. Okay. It's a cake with pesto, the pesto that you put in your, you know, you make a pesto sauce. Okay. I said, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> and she said, no, no, no. She goes, she, we looked. It's like tomato ice cream. Well, you know what? While we were – and by, right. people can do that. And by the way, while we were um, Skyping, I found a recipe online. Yeah. She amended it a little bit. Yeah. And I made pesto cake. Well, good for you. Can I tell you something? Yeah. It's really good. I know. What do you mean you know? Have you had it before? <laughs> no, I've never had it. Come here. Okay. Give, so give tell me if this okay. – this is pesto cake. Way this okay. is a, 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 this is unrehearsed, spontaneous – Oh, my gosh. Uh, it smells like pesto. Right? Totally. Blah. Wow. Hmm. That's interesting. Not a sweet cake. It's a savory cake. Mm-hmm. You know what this is? It's pesto? Well, it kind of... This is like... Here's the experience of this. If any, and This is like biting into pound cake and tasting pizza. <laughs> it is. Okay, I have to admit I put a little too much salt in it. It's a, little, okay. it's a little salty. I, I, I like salty things, so I'm yeah. okay with it. But, uh, okay... Seriously, it's like biting into pound cake and tasting pizza. That's what it is. Okay, so do you like it? Yeah. Yeah, I've never had a savory cake before. I didn't know this was possible. A pesto cake. That's interesting. And by the way, this thing is, first of all, it is completely unique and interesting. Mm -hmm. Nobody, like seven people in America have eaten it, and Mm -hmm. they're all Italian or French or whatever. And it is, at least the recipe I got, is incredibly easy to make. Okay, now that you're shoving it down your goddamn gullet, you're starting to get into it, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's good. Because there's pound cake that tastes like pizza. That's why. 
My goodness. Okay. Okay. If you know, if you didn't like it, you wouldn't you, you would be shoving little bites down your down your throat every five seconds. No. I'm gonna need something to drink. I gotta wash this down. Is that because of the salt? Because I put a little too much salt in it. No, it's just because I'm shoving my mouth with too much of it. Okay. Really good. You're okay because you're always honest, right? Uh-huh. If you don't like it, you'll tell me if no, you don't I'm like into it. it. Okay. That's okay. Okay, but when you first I kind of want to lick the napkin right now. When you first tried it, you were like, you didn't expect to taste that. Right. But then you got so a couple. It's pound b- cake that tastes like pizza. But but now that you've got a couple bites in your mouth, you're like, this is good. Absolutely. Look, if I had ice cream that tasted like pizza. My first thought would be, this is ice cream that tastes like pizza. And then I'd be like, I want more ice cream that tastes like mm-hmm. pizza. Of course, anything that tastes like pizza. I'm, su- I'm surprised they don't make perfumes that smell like pizza. Ladies and gentlemen, pesto cake. Pesto cake. That's very good. It was Thank actually, you. it was in French. It was like gâteau de whatever pesto yeah. was in French. All right. And I'm like, well, I don't understand what that is. So I had to Google it. And, and however you say pesto in French is pesto. And I thought, oh, pesto cake. That sounds disgusting. That's great. And then we found a recipe. I made it. It's so easy to make. You just take all the ingredients, just dump it into a bowl, and just bake it. Yeah. So there's nothing going on. All right. And uh, it was delicious. Okay, but now you want something to drink. Oh, here, yes. here's what I can give you. <clears throat> I can either give you something to drink or <coughs> – but this has nothing to do with Blu-rays no, or DVDs nothing. or entertainment. Yeah. Uh, I can either give you something to drink, which, of course, is the easy way out, okay. or because I'm being especially generous, I can give you a small scoop of – Chocolate peanut butter ice cream. Yeah, let's go with the, uh, the water. Really? Yeah, I need water. Well, uh, okay. Uh, My chocolate peanut not, butter I'm, ice cream. I'm is not a big fan of peanut butter. You who know? are you? Peanut butter is the best. I, yeah, I'm not. A Everything big... is good. Okay, when you go to a, a Thai restaurant, do they not give you peanut sauce with, with your satay? That's not peanut butter. Yeah, it is. It's peanut. But it's peanut sauce. Yeah, not peanut butter, okay. but it's peanut sauce. Fine. Uh, I'll, I'll water, give you water. 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 Boring. I'll I'll think about the ice cream later. Okay, so documentary called Casablanca is the man who loved women. If you've never heard. Of John Casablancas, you need to, because he's, he's the guy that, like, out-Hefnered Hefner. Um, basically, he's the guy who created Elite Modeling Agency, and uh, from there uh, gave us the whole supermodel phenomenon. Uh, John Casablancas was a fascinating guy, larger than life um, a- a- at the time. You know, that was his, his life in the 1970s and into the 80s. Anyway, uh, and this is all about him. And it's a little bit vain, as you would expect, but uh, it is a fascinating look at this life and a lifestyle and a particular kind of business that did not exist prior to the 1970s. We had, you know, supermodels were there in the 1960s, but not the way that Elite pioneered them and groomed them in the, in the 1970s. Uh, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. This is an American Masters documentary from PBS. A, uh, a, a beautiful, poetic, incredibly well-crafted tribute to uh, one of the great American poets of all time. And uh, it, it has interviews with l- literally just about everybody. Uh, it's astonishing. They, there's like nobody who wasn't willing to, uh, to talk to them. Um, everybody made themselves available. Produced through a whole wide coalition of, uh, of PBS uh, partners, including WNET. And uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and it's just perfect. It's an absolutely beautiful tribute. It includes some behind-the-scenes stuff and um, uh, interviews with, uh, you know, basically behind-the-scenes stuff with Common and John Singleton, both of who are, whom are uh, interviewed in the film. And uh, then we've also got uh, The Weapon Hunter. This is a Smithsonian Channel documentary, uh, which is all – this is the first season, by the way, of a, of a documentary series. So this is an ongoing thing on Smithsonian Channel. 
but it's uh, it is all about old weaponry, guns, tanks, you name it, that uh, are kept alive and resurrected and made fully functional uh, for the modern era so that we still have some kind of uh, functional legacy of our weapon history. Um, it's kind of an odd series, but it's interesting nonetheless. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a marginal kind of occupation. All right, Mark, let's, uh, let's talk about some new movies. Oh, new, new movies? Yeah, new movies. Okay, here's one that we, uh, we, we teased last week. And I, I have a feeling you're not as fond of this as I am. I am fond of it. I, you know what? I, I'm always amazed. This is my favorite Marvel superhero. I, I don't understand that. I, I'm always amazed how Marvel is able to push the envelope in different ways with different films, where the yep. films are basically the same, but they're just a little bit different. Doctor Strange is awesome. Like, this is the one who doesn't have really superpowers. He's more mystical. Yeah. You know, Ant-Man is the I funny it. one. You know, they, they, they find ways to push the envelope. And that's why I like Doctor Strange. It was mystical. I am, you know, there was, a Doctor, there was an attempt to make a Doctor Strange television series uh, back in the 80s. And they made the movie. The, the, the pilot was aired, and it just didn't really catch fire. But it was cool. And this is really very much in keeping with the same sensibilities. It, it's just there's something about Doctor Strange that he enters. And I guess this is what I always enjoyed about it is that everyone else in the Marvel Universe lives in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Parallel to the Marvel Universe is this mystical, magical other world that only Doctor Strange can enter. And I always found that to be interesting. You know, uh, the world the world of the Silver Surfer is the same world as the Hulk is the same world as, uh, you know, the Fantastic Four, is the same world as the Guardians of the Galaxy. They're all basically occupying the same general universe and space and interfacing with the same people, except for Doctor Strange. Where he goes, nobody else can go. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. So I, mean, I thought the movie was yeah. fine. It, yeah. it, it's got that Inception thing going on, you know, with the foldy buildings and everything. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, lots of extras here on the Blu-ray. This is a, uh, a you can get this in Blu-ray, DVD, or Blu-ray 3D, which also includes the Blu-ray and the DVD and the uh, the Disney Anywhere, uh, uh, you know, uh, digital access deal. Um, so yeah, Doctor Strange, lots of cool stuff on here, lots of cool extras uh, on how they did the effects and uh, you know how the, how the whole thing was conceived and. It's in a really excruciating detail, almost more detail than I really wanted. I enjoyed the audio commentary with Scott Derrickson quite a bit. Uh, I, I like Scott Derrickson. He's, a, he's fully in control of what he's doing. I, uh, I hope he, get, he does a lot more of this stuff. I really do. He's a good guy. They found a good guy. Uh, these, these workmanlike directors, they're not going to be best picture winners, but Marvel finds guys who just sort of they go to work and they do the job and they do a really good job. I, I'm amazed that they're giving Thor 3, whatever, whichever Thor it is, they give me to the guy who did Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah. Did you see that movie? Uh, no, I did not. It's terrific. It's really fun. It's oh, 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 Hunt for the Wilder Hunt People. The yes. Wilder no, people. no, I did. No, no. That's it's. Uh, yeah. Tiki I was thinking of something else. Papa. Yeah. No, no, no. Tiki tutu tata tuta. Well, no. Taika Waititi. Whatever. No. Yeah. Taika. Taika. I've met actually. Taika was his his. Uh, short film, Two Cars, One Night, a uh, black and white short film, was in the competition at the AFI Fest years ago when I was on the shorts jury. And uh, we gave him the award. We gave him the top award ahead of a short film that was also very, very funny, uh, but made by a guy who went on to do something like, uh, I, I think his dad directed Ghostbusters or something like that. Okay, so I cannot believe that... that, that uh... 
Mr. Kevin, Kevin Feige, yeah. Feige, yeah. whatever his name is today, he actually mm-hmm. knew that, hey, there's this guy named Tukitato Tutu. Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi, who did this crazy, which is a, it's a terrific film. Taika has been thoroughly. on the Taika's been on the radar for quite a while. If but you for remember, that kind of film, if you remember the year, the year that Two Cars One Night was in competition for the Oscars, I remember very well when they they had the cam- That was the year that they had cameras in the audience, and they just cut to these live cameras of of all the the shorts filmmakers sitting in the audience, and it was hysterical because Taika made just a ridiculous face into the camera. He made a mockery of the whole thing. Okay, uh, he's a very talented filmmaker. I'm not hugely fond of The Hunt for the Wilder People. I think it's a little out there, but Taika's a very very good filmmaker, and he will do an amazing job with it what i'm saying is that somehow kevin looked at him and said let's hand him 190 million dollars yeah. yeah the the year the two cars one night was a great short um you know about two kids in in uh cars while their parents are inside the you know the, the honky tonk or whatever in in new zealand uh, just hanging out and these two kids just kind of have a they develop a friendship and a, and a relationship just in adjacent cars in the parking lot great film uh, the Jason Reitman film that it was up against was hysterical, but not as good. It's you know two people who are about to have sex, but they have to negotiate it. So their lawyers pop up on adjacent sides of the bed and basically walk them through the negotiation, which was very funny. It's very Jason Reitman. I'm sure it's on YouTube if I wanted to watch I'm sure it. it is. I'm sure it is. Anyway, so Doctor Strange. I don't know how we got there from Doctor Strange, but uh, there we go. Okay, Mark, you got a couple of cool docs over there. What? Cool new docs on Blu-ray. You know, a funny thing is... One of which I love. uh, You know, I have to say something. As much as I uh, revere Sidney Lumet, and he's one of my favorite, if not all-time favorite directors of all time of all time, um, the documentary by Sidney Lumet, which was uh, created for uh, PBS, it's okay. Yeah. The whole thing is just one big, gigantic conversation with him interspersed with clips. But But it's good. It's good I because it. I, I love him. I would rather watch one of his films. I would rather True. I would rather read his book, Making Movies. Yeah, reread his book, Making Movies. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's fine. I don't know why I was watching this thing expecting more. Yeah, well. is there something wrong with me? No. Now this the now the um, Sidney Lumet uh, obviously has since died, but and the interview that uh, was done was conducted in two thousand eight, but. Um, He's got great stories in terms of his how he grew up, uh, how he started as an actor and then became a director. Um, I, I still think I'd rather reread Making Movies and watch this, but it's terrific. If you've never heard yeah. of Sidney Lumet or you don't realize how important he, he was and continues to be, definitely check out By Sidney Lumet. Sweet. Now, Southwest of Salem, a fascinating uh, documentary. It's about um, these four Latinas who were convicted, wrongly convicted, of gang raping two girls um, in the 80s. And uh, what's the twist here is that these four Latinas are lesbian. And so not only do you get this miscarriage of justice because they were completely innocent, but there's other societal issues that are addressed like homophobia and, um, you know, Trial misconduct and also various socioeconomic uh, inequality issues, and it's pretty fascinating stuff because it, it's got those deeper layers. So I would definitely check out Southwest of Salem. It's called uh, Southwest of Salem: The Story of the San Antonio Four. Special features include um, a couple of interviews uh, with the girls um, uh, post exoneration, as they call it on the back of the um, back of the DVD box, and um, a trailer and another featurette, but. Obviously, it's all about these women who were wrongly convicted and the fact that their 
sexual lifestyle somehow, for some ridiculous reason, played into how they were tried, the public's perception of them, which is just ridiculous. And so now we have this great documentary, Southwest of Salem. Uh, Chronic. Really interesting movie. Uh, they got no no love theatrically. Uh, this is from um, Lionsgate and uh, IFC, I believe, originally picked this up. Anyway, Chronic won uh, Best Screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival. Michel Franco directed it, and it is it is a beautiful, touching, really well written film. Uh, anyway, the um, this was this also got a, a Spirit Award nomination, but it's it just it it was somehow I just didn't get any love theatrically. I just don't get it. Uh, the idea here is Tim Roth, who is so good in this. He hasn't been this good in years. Tim Roth is a uh, a nurse who cares for terminally ill patients but personally suffers from depression. And uh, it is all about the relationships that he develops and uh, and how he copes and how he helps them cope. It's beautiful. It's really, really a sweet film. It includes a little behind-the-scenes featurette. It is not on Blu-ray. It is only on DVD, uh, largely owing to the fact that it just didn't uh, it didn't catch fire. And I... Wish it were otherwise. Um, had it, it might have been an Oscar nominee for best screenplay, to be honest, because it's really well written. It's really a beautiful film. Um, this is the winner of the week, i got to tell you. Um, it's been a long time, Mark, since we've talked about a Steven Seagal movie. Wait, did we talk about a Steven Seagal movie seven days ago? So uh, oh. this is our second Steven Seagal movie in a, in, in a week. Um, Mark, why does he keep making movies? Seriously. Because people keep paying him. Why, two Steven Seagal movies in two weeks. What Contract is up? Oh, oh, look. It's actually, this is very different. He's, uh, he's got jet black hair and a jet black goatee, and he's holding a gun on you both know, the, the cover and the back. That's different from last week where he had uh, a jet, jet black, black hair and a he should, goatee, and he was holding a gun. He should do a film called Jet Black. That'd be a cool name for a movie. Okay, so he, he's fat and he dyes his hair with a color that doesn't exist anywhere in nature. And, um, you know, this is, he, he, he's, uh, they're, they're terrorists in Mexico. And, By the way, know, his name is Steven Siegel. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like Stephen Colbert. You know, his name yeah. is Stephen Colbert. Yeah. His name is not Stephen Colbert. I know. And in fact, I, had a, uh, I, was, I was talking about Steven Seagal years ago in line to see a movie at the Academy. And the lady behind us butts into our conversation. She goes, Siegel. He's little Stevie Siegel. I went to elementary school with him. It was hysterical. It was hysterical to have her just go, yeah, he was Stevie Siegel until, you know, he became like the Aikido master and then he's Steven Seagal. Yeah, whatever. Did I, did I ever show you the photo? It's the same of, thing with uh, Ray Fiennes, you know. What do you mean? It, Ray Fiennes is not how you pronounce his name. Joseph doesn't like to go by Joseph Fiennes because he pronounces it Fiennes. He says, your name is Ralph Fiennes. Is that his name? That's the, that's really how it's pronounced. But Ray Fiennes just sounds more but regal or regal aristocratic, or, yeah. or like he's a thespian. Yeah, <laughs> is that right? So really, it is Ralph. It is Ralph. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm very disappointed by it. I thought it was like some weird Celtic BS no. was going on. No. Did I ever yeah. show you a friend of mine used to work with Seagal? Worked with him for years. Yeah. And he's a piece of work. Yeah. I mean, he oh I know. he likes he likes flying to Bangkok and doing what yeah, he's doing in Bangkok. But did I ever show you the? He once texted me a photograph of a painting that Seagal commissioned for himself. It is a painting of Seagal dressed as Genghis Khan on a horse. Full-on Genghis Khan wardrobe on a horse, looking like he's the master of all. It sounds like something from the (laughs) in-laws, doesn't it? It does, though. Anyway, so yeah, so look, I, I, there's terrorists who are using d- drug cartel tunnels to smuggle weapons. I, I don't know. It's, it's just none of it makes sense. This is also from Grindstone, same company that made the last one. They just crank these things out. 
Seagal gets no other work. He made stuff for Grindstone. They pay him a few bucks, and uh, they sell these things all over the world, I guess. It's a business model that works for them both, but, man, these movies are terrible. Uh, this is uh, on Blu-ray with Ultraviolet. Got no extras. Doesn't need them. Why would you want them? Well, I mean, it's got a, you know, making of thing, but who cares? Uh, so, with that out of the way, Mark. <laughs> we don't know if this has won any Oscars yet. Uh, if there is, if anything can upset La La Land, this can. I, you know what? But I, you I, and I are not as keen on it as everybody else. I think I'm just dead inside, like I said last week. <laughs> no, you're also, not. Also, you know what? I think, too, that... Um, We're talking about Moonlight. I think, too, that I, I felt... Uh, this is so mean. Here's the thing. The film is... Go, is what, what really sells me is, is, I how, think, is how gentle and well-meaning it is. The, everybody came into this with the best of intentions. We can safely say that by the time people are listening to this, this is almost certainly an Oscar winner of something in some form. Yeah, it's probably yeah. cinematography, maybe. Nah, um, I don't think it, nah, I think oh, La, La, La La Land. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. There's a crane shot, and they're dancing towards the crane. No, you, you know what? You watch that opening sequence. I mean, both of these films. Yeah, it'll, it'll win it based on the opening. La La Land and Moonlight both open with amazing one-take sequences that are incredibly well-staged. Camera Wait, movement. first of everything. all, get your phone, because it's gone off like three times, and I will talk oh, about it? Moonlight. Yes. Really? It's not my phone. Oh, might be. It's gone off like three okay, times well, in the last two that, minutes. Don't stop the recording. I won't. I won't. Talk about Moonlight. You know it's your wife. Talk about Moonlight. What I'm saying is that um, I felt it, there was a little bit of box checking going on. It's African-American, gay, young kid, inner city, whatnot. So it felt a little bit like box checking. I really loved uh, Mahershala Ali. And I was looking at that guy going, God, I hope you're in this whole movie. And it turns out he's not. And he's going to win an Oscar. Uh, but he's just great. And I, I, but even though the character annoyed me, because I thought to myself, okay, here's, here is this kid who is lucky enough to meet the world's nicest drug dealer. I mean, this guy is just a prince of drug dealers. I mean, when, I mean honestly, this kid yeah. hit the jackpot. It, it, here's, here so that kind of got me off to a bad start. By the way, the, the, the phone that was ringing off the hook, uh-huh. that was my mother-in-law. She's called four times. <laughs> well, maybe she's something important. Not really. How do you know? Because it's my mother-in-law. <laughs> Oh, you're used to it. Yeah, I am. I know. It's, I just I just know what it is. Love my mother-in-law, but, you know. Anyway, so, yes, carrying on. Uh, here are my issues with, with Moonlight. And first of all, I think Barry Jenkins, tremendously talented filmmaker uh, and writer. I think I'm thrilled that he's, he's finally kind of broken through. Um, and he's got many great films in him to, to come. Beautiful instincts. Very, very good with actors. I mean, really, really talented with actors. Um, I, and I like the fact that this is a very simple story, simply told, three chapters in the life of, uh, of a man uh, from, ch- from childhood through adolescence and into adulthood. Uh, and, and it doesn't feel the need to sort of overcomplicate a very simple story because the emotions are so true. I get all that. My issue is this. Uh, I think it kind of it spends two-thirds uh, giving you a character who is the antithesis to every... Uh, LGBT movie cliche about a gay man, okay? And we know there are lots of them. We, we talk about some of them on this show. And every every you know gay and lesbian film festival has about a you know two dozen of these movies where this is your gay man, and it's like every stereotypical gay friend that everybody has ever had. Okay, two thirds of this movie is saying here's a, here's a, this guy is not that guy, and that's really compelling. And then at the end, he kind of becomes a gay cliche. And uh, I think I've, I've heard the arguments that say, yeah, but that's, you know, that's who he would become. 
And I recognize there's some validity to that, but I it still was a little bit of a disappointment to me that you spend two-thirds of this movie giving me someone, and then at the end of the movie you go, well, he goes there anyway. And that disappointed me, even though it's still, it, you know, it recovers a bit at the end in a very, very uh, honest and touching way. I just, I kind of wish it hadn't have gone there. So that's my, my take. Do you also think to yourself that there was too much time between the second and third chapters? Um, You're like, he seemed like a totally different person. That's part of, that's part of the issue. That's part of my issue with that, too. And, and you know, I, that just becomes a personal preference at a certain point. It is still, nonetheless, a very, very, very w- well-made film. And it was made for a million and a half dollars. For a million and a half bucks, man. I mean, it's a very sensitive story that has its heart in the right place, beautifully shot. It's be- Look, it's beautifully shot. It's adequately recorded, right? The audio is good. It's solid. It doesn't need to be, like, the greatest sound film of all time. It's just – it's basically all dialogue. Uh, but the performances are amazing. You don't need to spend a lot of money to get great acting, great writing, great acting, great cinematography. These th- is shot on film. These things don't have to cost a lot of money. They made this for a million and a half. You can make a great movie for a million and a half. I, you can't. I, it's I, hard, but you can do it. I, I just want to make sure that this is not a response to you know, Oscar's so white. No. That people now it, feel not, that though. they have to take the African-American film and overpraise it so that I, they don't feel like they're uh, – I think they're I, – I, I will be honest. I think some of that accounts for this film's uh, critical acclaim, but I think the film is good enough that it would have gotten all of that uh, – the, the, the lion's share of that acclaim anyway. I think it would have still been nominated for all the Oscars that it, nominations it got because it's good enough and the performances are great. Um, so I'll – you know, yeah. Anyway. Oh, Robertson. You know, I liked Allied. I'll tell you why I liked Did Allied. Did you really? I liked it as, as good old-fashioned mainstream Saturday night at the movies filmmaking. That's all it was to me. Look, I guess. If, 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 if this was Humphrey Bogart and this was uh, whatever, somebody— It would be one of their less interesting films. Okay, fine. <laughs> if this was Bogart and this was uh, whoever, yeah. Warren Bacall or yeah. uh, somebody, you'd be yeah. like, wow, this is good old-fashioned World War II filmmaking. I guess. You know, I, I thought it was fine. I was into it. I, I was into it on that basis because, again, Barry Levinson, at this point, he's old-fashioned as much as he's trying to, you know, as much as he spent a lot of time, or Zemeckis. Zemeckis. As much as he spent a lot of time trying to, yeah. you know, modern himself up. Yeah. Uh, eventually, he winds up making his best film in years by going back. It's weird. Well, Brad Pitt, it's yeah. Marion Cotillard. It's, a, it's just a good old-fashioned spy thriller, and I yeah. just enjoyed it as, as, on that basis. Yeah. You obviously didn't like it. I just, I think it's... I think it's lame. <laughs> it's just, it's well made. Look, I like him. I like her. I like the fact that it was lame. You know why? Yeah. Because I just feel like it's, this would be a film that would be made in the studio era. It would have it been. It might not be the best film made in yeah, the studio era, no. but it would be one of those crank em out World War II films. You know what yeah, I mean? It was. It's just, you Like know. the bad guy would be played by sure. Sidney Greenstreet. It'd be yeah. awesome. All right, so it's 4K. If they uh, made this film in 1945, you're like, this is fun. <laughs> yeah, you would be like, this is fun. I guess so. So anyway, uh, all right, Allied, Brad Pitt, Marion Cotillard. It's a lot of fun, Mark says. Uh, it's on Wait, 4K, answer. 4K, a lot of a lot of special features on the behind-the-scenes stuff, production design, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada, I guess, fine. <laughs> Okay. Come on. So you must remember this. Okay. So uh, Maggie Greenwald, one of the most underrated filmmakers on the planet. I love Maggie Greenwald. She doesn't make movies often enough. Uh, she, she really doesn't. Uh, Songcatcher was the one that really kind of caught everybody's attention. Uh, before that, she made The Ballad of Little Joe with uh, the the current Mrs. James Cameron. 
Uh, and uh, now she's made uh, Sophie and the Rising Sun. Damn it, Maggie Greenwald should should have been nominated for an Oscar by now, and these are all really fine films, and this may be the best film that she's made, and it's so sad to me. It got almost no attention. This was at Sundance. Uh, didn't get enough love at Sundance, I don't think. Uh, it is really, really good. So Sophie and the Rising Sun, in many respects, is kind of a remake of The Ballad of Little Joe. The Ballad of Little Joe, of course, uh, starred Susie Amos, again, currently Mrs. James Cameron, as uh, as a woman who in the West, you know, pretends to be a man and then uh, winds up having a romance with a Chinese railroad worker, which of course creates all kinds of problems. the The interracial white woman Asian man uh, caught in a you know cultural maelstrom forbidden romance angle is also what this is about. Except this takes place in 1941 in a little South Carolina village where a young woman uh, who has a certain history in the village, very, very sweet woman, uh, develops a friendship with a young Asian man who is beaten up and thrown off of a bus in their village, and uh, everyone takes him for Chinese. Oh. And, what, the, what was that? You know what I was doing, actually? What were you doing? <laughs> While you were droning on, I uh, looked up an article called Ray Fines Reveals Backstory on His Name. Yeah. I'm, I was. Oh, you're looking that up. Looking okay. that up for you while you droned on about Sophie and the Rising Sun. Well, anyway, uh, Sophie and the Rising Sun is a is a is a is a really beautiful film, and the woman and the uh, the man, who of course, as we all know, is Japanese, but unbeknownst to the people in the village, uh, they fall in love, and it is a forbidden romance, and of course, that creates all kinds of problems, etc. and so forth. Julianne Nicholson plays the woman. She is. Phenomenal. You you mostly know Julianne Nicholson because she was uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's partner on uh, Law and Order, um, Criminal Intent for for a while, and uh, she's great. She's just absolutely terrific. Um, uh, or was Julianne Nicholson uh, Jeff Goldblum's partner? I think she was. I think she was paired with Jeff Goldblum in Criminal Intent. I forget which. I get. I've seen that. Get everybody why, why mixed up. Why did you watch that show? that show? Anyway, because my my wife was really into it. Uh, anyway. Great Julia, support, great perform, supporting performances. Margot Martindale, uh, Diane Ladd hasn't been this good in decades, uh, and of course the the man who plays the 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 uh, beleaguered Japanese gardener who is you know looking to just have a peaceful life, uh, Takashi Yamaguchi, fantastic. And of course, needless to say, Pearl Harbor happens at a certain point in the movie, which creates all kinds of additional issues beyond the the racial issues to begin with. So. Um, Great movie, so sensitively made, uh, really well written, and for no money, Maggie Greenwald, somebody needs to just throw her a bone and let her do something really, really great. I, I just, I can't imagine what kind of struggles she goes through to get her movies made. It just sucks. By the way, uh, in order to find the answer to that question, yeah. I have to watch a 25-minute video. I'm not going to do that. Okay. But according <laughs> to his Wikipedia page, his name, his full name is uh, Ralph Nathaniel Twizzleton Wickenham Fines. Okay, if his if part of his name is Twizzleton Wickenham, it may very well be Rafe. <laughs> Twizzleton Wickenham? What kind of BS is that? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, we got we got some cult films. I'm gonna burn through some cult films, Mark. Okay. You ready? I am. I'm gonna burn through some cult films, and then we're gonna we're gonna go to some uh, some classics and other fun things. Psychomania from the uh, Arrow collection of. Um, this is from um, MVD Distribution. Psychomania is uh, just pretty much one of the, the – well, how do I put this? 
It's not Easy Rider. Uh, it is. It's from the same era. It's from that same period. It is. Uh, you know. It, it's. It's just a really weird zombie biker exploitation film from the '60s, and I just I can't really uh, recommend it. It's just it's kind of a mess. But that being said, um, the guy who directed it, Don Sharp, came out of the Hammer Studios thing, and so he's got a little bit of style and a certain thing, but. Uh, the idea of, of zombie bikers is like, okay, we've had Easy Rider and we've had Night of the Living Dead. Let's just mash them together. It doesn't really work. Um, but that being said, it's a, it's a cult film. People love this film. It's got a real following, and it comes with gobs and gobs of extras on its restoration, 2K restoration from the original, uh, the original Separation Masters. And uh, a new interview with Nikki Henson, who stars in it, which is interesting, and then uh, you know, a little cool little archive featurette, which I actually thought was more interesting than the movie. So that is uh, Psychomania. Boy, is that a weird, weird one. Anti-Birth. This is a newer film. Means to be a cult film. This is from IFC Midnight. It's on uh, Blu-ray and DVD together in a combo pack. Natasha Leone, Chloe Savigny, and the uh, the great Meg Tilly, who hasn't been around for, for a while. She kind of disappeared. Uh, you know, this is uh, just about some... Kind of millennial girls who take drugs and hang out, and uh, then they're basically one of them becomes pregnant, and there's no explanation. And of course, there may very well be kind of a kind of a Rosemary's Baby thing go on, or maybe not. And uh, then it gets really weird and freaky. And it's called Anti Birth, and you know, I guess it's it wants to be an exploitation film, kind of, sort of is. Stakeland Two: Death Is No Escape. Um, that is Stakeland, S-T-A-K-E. Don't get your hopes up. It's not about uh, Prime Rib or anything. Uh, it's a zombie movie. That's all it is. It's a you know vampire zombie whatever undead creepy creepy movie. Uh, it's okay. Uh, just a lot of style. Uh, I didn't see Stakeland One, so I'm just gonna assume that this is basically Mad Max meet Mad Max Mad Max meets zombie vampires. Uh, Dead West is from uh, RLJ Entertainment. Uh, this has this has a little thing going for it. Uh, the uh, the guy who directed this uh, also edited it. He wrote, directed, and edited. Takes all three credits. I kind of wish people wouldn't necessarily do that. Uh, Jeff Farrell, who also gives a really interesting commentary. The movie, again, is Dead West, and uh, it's about a guy who... Uh, it's kind of a, one of these modern horror western deals. He, uh, he's, looking for his, he's looking for his girl, looking for a girl to love. Not just one in particular, just any girl that will sort of be his girl. And uh, he winds up, by and large, uh, killing them because they, they just, they're not right. And, you know, why waste it? Right? You do that too, you know. You go on a date. You get, you do a J date thing. It doesn't really work out, so you just you murder her, right? You know, isn't that what you something. used to do? I am so happy that you're I have not a doing that anymore. Even though she is seven thousand miles away, <laughs> yeah. I, I I hear stories about friends who like Zach went on a J date the other yeah. night, Saturday night. Don't go on a J date on a Saturday night. Yeah, that's like a especially a first date, right? And he's telling me what happened. I'm like, you know what? Even if this relationship is just some pretend BS relationship with with a woman who will never work out because she lives in Paris, I'd rather do that than be on J date. Yeah, and then I'd murder them. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's what this is about, and of course, it all eventually catches up with him. It's a thing. It's a trend. It'll 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 run its course. Uh, and last year, Dario Argento presents. Uh oh. That hey, means that's better than him making a movie. That <laughs> that means that means they got no other way of marketing this. Uh, Dario Argento presents Sergio Stivaletti's Wax Mask. 
Oh dear. Uh, this is a uh, this is just a, a, a crazy schlocky giallo thing. Uh, it, you know it, it's um, it, this was originally apparently supposed to have been directed by Lucio Fulci, and uh, he died before they were able to make the movie. So they threw it into the hands of Sergio Stivaletti, who is no no Dario Argento and no Lucio Fulci. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's just, whatever. It's on Blu-ray. I, I can't, I can't possibly recommend it. Uh, James Herbert gets the possessory credit here, uh, because he wrote the novel. And I guess, I guess that's meaningful because I don't know who James Herbert is, but you get to call this James Herbert's The Survivor, even though it's directed by David Hemmings. Uh, anyway, uh, this is, this is. Pretty decent schlock from uh, from Severin from 1981. Still has kind of a 70s schlocky vibe with a one foot in the 80s schlock era of uh, AFM specials. Uh, essentially, this is an Australian schlocker with, with a, a plane that crashes in uh, in the suburb of Sydney, and um, the uh, you know everyone dies, uh, but one guy comes out without a scratch on him. And uh, the question is, wow, what's going on here? And then you get into this whole, there's a whole kind of supernatural angle to this, and it's a, it's a big thing. Allegedly, this was um, super expensive and a really, really costly film in Australia at the time, but 1981 is like sort of the era of Ozploitation, so that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but it's called The Survivor, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those, it's all right. Uh, last couple, The Devil's Dolls. This is from IFC Midnight with uh, nobody in particular. It is uh, kind of a run-of-the-mill horror film that has a little bit of uh, kind of, you know, it's new, made in 2016, but it means to feel like an 80s or a 19, late 1970s uh, horror film. And uh, it's all about serial killer. It's, you know, it's okay. It's fine as far as serial killer movies go. And then a new movie that looks like an old movie, again, is Never Open the Door. Um, this, this one's all shot in black and white, and it's uh, very claustrophobic, very low budget. Uh, it's about a people having a Thanksgiving dinner in the woods. Oh, never go in the woods. And uh, this injured man shows up at their door, and uh, then everything just, you know, never answer the door. Never go to the woods, and if you do, don't answer the door. Anyway, pretty well done for what it is, and uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it bodes well for the future of exploitation film in this era where everything is exploitation. Wow, that was a brilliant summation, Wade. Thank you. All right, so. Criterion, the Before Trilogy. Richard Linklater, boy, this guy likes taking his time telling a story. Between <laughs> this and Boyhood, he's yeah. told four films. It's taken him forever. 30 years to make well, four films. He has Bernie in there. You throw Bernie in there. Anyway, the Before Trilogy is quite the achievement. And I have to tell you something. As somebody who, um, as I mentioned before, and as you know, especially from last week, as somebody who um, met his girlfriend in 2004, and we did not speak at all except on email for 10 years before reconnecting. That's kind of amazing. It's a little you bit. Get the, you get this. It's a little this before-ish. This speaks to you. It's a little before-ish. And, yeah. it's, it's, and it really resonates because, you know, the whole – the whole movie is about uh, the whole series really is about people's conception of love and what love really is and whether whether someone's fantasy of what love's going to be you know whether it'll ever match the reality of yeah. being together and the difficulties and whatnot 
And so what these guys go are going through is exactly what I'm going through. Of course, they have twins. I, I, they, they have twins in this in these films, right? In the last film, they had twins. Um, I, of course, have no children. Um, but anyway, so the Before Trilogy has been packaged by Criterion into a great set. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. By the way, the first one in 1995, the last one in 2013. That's just crazy. And uh, Link later, he loves his commentaries. He loves loading up these things, helping Criterion load up these things with... Um, with supplements, there's new discussions with Linklater and uh, Delpy and Hawk. And what's nice about Linklater, what he does in these things, is that he actually gives Delpy and Hawk co-writer credit. Yeah. Because, again, this is all figured it's, it's, out it's, with it's, the three of them. It's, a, it's workshopped in the way that Mike Lee does. It's a, it's a, it's a similar process. Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, I mean, I am not as fond of these movies as, I, as some people are, but I certainly respect the, uh, the outside-the-box thinking, and I'm... I'm really hoping he leaves it at three films because if he adds another one, it's going to sort of ruin everything. Well, now there'll be like 60 or something. It's going to be weird. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got some other really great classics here. I mean, what a great week for, uh, for old movies. Mildred Pierce, Joan Crawford's all-time classic, directed by Michael Curtiz, who, of course, did uh, Casablanca as well, uh, the Hungarian-born Curtiz who'd made so many great Hollywood movies. This is a 4K restoration on Blu-ray from Criterion. It is gorgeous. Uh, uncompressed audio because it's mono, and it sounds and it looks so beautiful. The black and white is just so glowing and pristine. And, uh, you know, this was remade for uh, HBO uh, with uh, Kate Winslet not too long ago, and it's very good, but m this is the original Mildred Pierce. It is just fantastic because it's made at a time when the whole concept of being a single mom was a bigger deal. Like single moms today, it's, it's, there's, a dime, you know, there's a dime a dozen. But uh, back in the you know 1945, being a single mom, was that was like kind of almost scandalous, and Joan Crawford was as big as a star came at the time. And uh, the whole, to kind of convert that into a noir uh, is just really amazing. Uh, it's just such a great film. Lots of great stuff on here. Uh, an excerpt from a 1970 episode of uh, The David Frost Show with Joan Crawford. Uh, a 2002 feature-length documentary, The Ultimate Movie Star, which is all about Joan Crawford uh, and her career, which is just, I mean, that's, that bonus is worth the, the price of purchase alone. And then uh, a really cool segment from a 1969 episode of The Today Show uh, with James M. Cain, who, of course, was the author of Mildred Pierce. And uh, you, you just learn everything about Mildred Pierce, and it's fantastic through and through. And then from the, uh, the Vestron video collector's series. Yeah, Vestron. Which is great. Lionsgate has resurrected the Vestron library with a special uh, brand, and we've been covering them, and they come with a slip cover and that Vestron logo. And Vestron, one of the original genre DVD, uh, straight to, to VHS companies. Uh, this is The Gate. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember The Gate? Where the, kid, where the kids find that gate to this other world. Yeah, oh, it was so much fun. It was like low-budget trashy goonies. It was great. It was really, really fun. Uh, the gate is... Uh, it's funny how these movies that we, that we thought were junk in the 1980s, like suddenly now there's... Wow, it feels kind of cool because this is now, you know, 30 years old. It's 30 years old, 1986. A lot of fun. Uh, the director, Tibor Takash does a commentary uh, along with a lot of his collaborators on this. And then there are just, there's an isolated score and audio interviews and, uh, you know, interviews with the effects people. All of this is just really interesting. And, you know, again, it's just demons coming into a small suburban town. It's like Steven Spielberg and uh, Joe Dante 
meet in a really schlocky, straight-to-video movie, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. The Gate from the Vestron Collector series on Blu-ray from Lionsgate. A wait from uh, Warner Archive uh, Collection. We have Love in the Afternoon. I love this movie. Uh, You know what? Uh, This is Billy Wilder, one of the all-time great directors. And not only that, but this was Wilder's first collaboration with uh, I.A.L. Diamond, uh, which they would write so many great films together. Izzy Diamond. Izzy Diamond. And, uh, yeah, this is Audrey Hepburn. uh, Not one of her more stylish hairstyles, I have to say, but uh, this is Audrey Hepburn falling in love with a much older man. He was like 30 years older almost. uh, Yeah. uh, It's Gary Cooper. One, yep. of my, one of my least favorite um, golden age, uh, golden age stars. But anyway, Gary Cooper, Audrey Hepburn. It is a May December romance, and this thing is probably at the bottom of near the bottom of my Billy Wilder favorite films list. Well, it's I mean, but look, it's, it's still a, it's a solid a, movie. It's a solid movie. It's a solid movie. I mean, it's, you see this for the stars. It's not. Uh, it's you know Gary Cooper and Audrey Hepburn. Come on, it's like how you just they're just beautiful. It's two beautiful people. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, 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 seeing the two of them together is really creepy. <laughs> she, she's she's always like this young gay mind who you know yeah. does looks like she's perpetually twenty seven years old. True, and he's like Gary Cooper, and he's like aging and gray and ugh. dead time stories. Blu-ray DVD combo pack. This is from a uh, Shout Factory from the Scream Factory division. Uh, dead time stories was uh, is another eighties uh, movie from nineteen eighty six. Same year as The Gate has the same vibe. Same vibe. It's that a whole era. It's uh, it'd be a good double feature together. Uh, this uh, this is essentially uh, about um, you know nightmares that become real, and uh, it's 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 a lot of fun. It's a lot of schlocky fun. Uh, directed by Jeffrey Delman, who does a new audio commentary, and is clearly so glad that someone's talking to him again because he just doesn't make movies anymore. Um, and it's a, it's a great transfer. Uh, Shout Factory does a really good job digging up elements and and doing right by them, and uh, I you know it's I I it's it was schlocky at the time it was horrible at the time but somehow now it kind of feels kitschy and cool and uh, I kind of uh, I kind of enjoy this uh, it was you know it, it it I remember at the time this was like the uh, this was one of those movies that went straight to midnight movie status and now I kind of feel like wow it's 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 amazing how time kind of restores the luster to movies that we just didn't like before. Anyway, Dead Time Stories. Uh, Dirty Dancing. You know, if you watch Dirty Dancing, which, by the way, is available now in a 30th anniversary edition Blu-ray, you realize that without the music, this movie sucked. <laughs> it really does. This is just a silly story. But you know yeah. what? The music is so good, carries you along, and they had heat, and Patrick Swayze was so handsome, and she was so cute. And uh, You know what redeems this movie is the French romantic comedy Heartbreaker. In French, it's called l'arnaqueur, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pun, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The it's it's hysterical uh-huh. because this factors into that movie. Uh-huh. It's really funny. Uh-huh. It's hysterically funny. Uh-huh. Okay, never mind. <laughs> anyway, do you need to buy this if you, if you have one of the other? Uh, you know, not really. <laughs> not really. You've had I mean, you've had the time of your life. Once is enough. It really is true. I mean, I mean, how often do you want to revis- revisit this film? But once a year. You realize you realize this has this has like six hours of extras on it. It's just and some new stuff. There, there, there's new stuff on there. Some yeah, it's pretty good. Who's gonna watch? Who's gonna watch Dirty Dancing and then say, you know what? It's only two in the afternoon, and I don't have to be anywhere until nine. So I think I'll spend the rest of the day watching extras. It's why it's just at a certain point it's too many extras for movies that don't warrant it. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, interviews and interviews and interviews and, of course, a couple of commentaries. It's just crazy. 
So when Carrie Fisher died, the yeah. one thing about the one if there's only if there's one good thing about Carrie Fisher dying is that people got to realize what an amazing writer she was. People That's just, true. People just thought, oh, she's Princess Leia. But she had this amazing no. career as a script doctor and an author and all this great screenwriter, yep. all this great stuff that people didn't really dive into until she died. Yep. And so in the vein of that, we have on Blu-ray Postcards from the Edge, which is uh, based uh, on her novel, and she adapted the screenplay. This, of course, is directed by Mike Nichols, and it stars Meryl Streep as the Carrie Fisher-type character, Suzanne Vale, who uh, just landed herself in rehab. And so she decamps to her mother's home, played by Shirley MacLaine. By the way, how was Shirley at the um, laughter dinner, which I missed? I, I, I missed it, too. You didn't go? I, was, I didn't go. I was babysitting. Because Christy was in Paris. Uh-huh. uh-huh. See? Well, you know why I didn't go? Because you were on your way to Paris. <laughs> I was in Paris. Yeah, you were. Yeah. Oh. Um, but you realize that uh, uh, she's just a terrific writer. It's so funny, and it's so insightful, and it just it just comes from that place of having lived it. Yet it's still mainstream enough that you can get a lot of laughs out of it. I think Postcards from the Edge is just terrific. So uh, yeah, I would definitely check out Postcards from the Edge, especially because of Carrie Fisher. If it's maybe it's not a movie that you would want to watch because it's Meryl Streep and it's Shirley MacLaine and who are they, but um, for Carrie Fisher, you'll really get a sense of what a great writer she was from Postcards from the Edge. So uh, Coffin Joe is a horror classic, and these films are Brazilian. That is what makes them so unusual. This is this is like the the first time that Bra- these br- are Brazilian movies that became mainstream cult classics with uh, international audiences. Uh, Coffin Joe is an undertaker and just a horrible human being, and uh, you know can't have a child, and then he uh, it's just on and on and on it goes. It's just it's it, it's a creep fest. And the, uh, the, the horrible, psychotic adventures of uh, Coffin Joe, who eventually winds up getting a, uh, a hunchback assistant, much like Igor in the Frankenstein movies. It begins with uh, At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul, which has not been on DVD for quite some time. So the Synapse has recently now released the official, complete Coffin Joe collection for the first time in years. Uh, the the uh, third of the films, uh, The Embodiment of Evil, uh, was out on Blu-ray not too long ago in a Blu-ray DVD combo set. They don't have Blu-rays of the new films yet, um, but they're av- available now in the set and individually. And they are, of course, the first film, uh, At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul, and the second one, uh, This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. Uh, Brazilian horror, pretty creepy. Doesn't Does it really work from a story standpoint? No. Does it work from a horror standpoint? Totally yes, all over the place. Uh, so, yeah, Coffin Joe is back, all three of them. And you can get it in a complete set, too. Uh, Mark, we got a bunch of stuff from Kino. Great lineup from Kino. I'm going to go through the whole Kino lineup. we got the uh, classics, the Kino Studio classics, a bunch of those. And then we also have a couple from uh, other lines. Redemption, from their Redemption Library line, is Jess Franco's Dr. Orlop's Monster. We uh, uh, think Jeff Franco is a bit of a hack, but he, you know, he, he made a few films that are not bad. And in 1964, he hadn't completely blown his brains out yet. So uh, this still has a certain cachet to it. This is the sequel, of course, to The Awful Dr. Orloff, which was the film that really kind of put him on the map. And uh, it is basically the same. It is uh, largely the the same kind of a horror film, same mood, same general quality to it. And, uh, you know, as far as early zombie films go, I guess it's uh, it's perfectly fine. Um, Better than most subsequent Jess Franco stuff, I will say. The gem of the week is uh, another one of these regular Kino classics. This is Buster Keaton, uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., along with College. 
these are from the Lobster Library. Uh, the, these have both been released by Kino before in different transfers uh, in the complete Buster Keaton uh, set. I, 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 I'm hard-pressed to tell you that these are better than the ones that are in the, in the box set. Uh, but you may still want to double dip. Uh, well, I, I, I have these. Steamboat Bill Jr. and College is hilarious. College, they're great movies. That, that goes without saying. These are, these are 2K restorations that came out of Lobster, and I don't know that they look that much better no, not to me. than what's on the, uh, on, the, on the original Kino Blu-ray release. But um, still, you know, if you want to be a completist, hang on to it. Lots of great extras on here. I mean, a lot of great extras. Audio commentary by Michael Schlesinger and uh, Stan uh, Taffel on Steamboat Bill. Uh, audio commentary by Rob Farr on College. Really, really excellent. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, there's a kind of a cool Alka-Seltzer commercial that Buster Keaton was in that's also included here. Um, there's an introduction by Lillian Gish on uh, College, which I thought was really interesting. And then a uh, 1928 uh, collegiate comedy with Carol Lombard called Run, Girl, Run, which kind of sort of coincides with this. And then uh, Buster Keaton's final performance in 1966 in The Scribe. All of that is included uh, in this double feature of Steamboat Bill Jr. in college. I, but again, I can't tell you if, if you should or should not double dip. It's a, it's a tough call. And uh, then to kind of wrap things out, we've got uh, seven from the Studio Classics line, the Kino Studio Classics line. Some better than others, but all of them have a certain uh, cachet to them. From 1983 is another one of these Mad Maxi ripoffs called uh, Striker. And uh, this is from 1983. Uh, It's a New World production, which at the time was Roger Corman's New World before he sold it. And uh, it is derivative in the very, very best uh, Roger Corman way. Jim Wynorski, a legend in 80s-era schlock, does the audio commentary. And it is a really, really, really fun commentary. I highly, highly recommend it. It is uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, You're going to thoroughly enjoy what uh, Wynorski says. It's actually better than the movie. Uh, and uh, you know a lot of other a lot of other crap followed from this, but Striker with an with a Y S T R Y K E R. As far as the Road Warrior Mad Max knockoffs go, it is certainly one of the schlockier and more amusing. The Unholy Four is uh, a uh, is a, a kind of sort of uh, spaghetti western uh, directed by E. B. Clutcher, otherwise known as Enzo Barboni, and. Um, it, you know, it's not as fun as most spaghetti westerns are, but uh, it's got its moments. It's got its moments. This was made in 1970, kind of in the wake of the, D- the Django moment, well after uh, all the, uh, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the Sicilian clan is actually quite a lot of fun. There are, uh, this, is, this is when, there's something that French actors would do at a certain point, which is they'd all go into these kind of gangstery gun movies when their careers were a little bit on the wane. And Italian, director, uh, Italian actors would do this as well. And this is one of those. Not a great film. It's 1969. It's a, certainly a, it's a, you know, it's a genre film. But Alain Delon, Jean Gabin, very old Jean Gabin, and Lino Ventura are, a, you know, give them guns and put them in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a French gun gangster movie and you'll have a lot of fun. Is it great? No, of course not. But uh, you understand why this has a certain cachet when you listen to the commentary with uh, Howard Berger and Nathaniel Thompson. They uh, perfectly, perfectly put it in its context, and uh, you have a greater appreciation for it. 
I'm a lot more of a, a fan of No Highway in the Sky, which I think is enormous fun. Uh, Jimmy Stewart and Marlena Dietrich for director Henry Koster, who was great with these kind of programmers. Uh, they are a wonderful, wonderful pair together. Not the not two actors you would think to normally put themselves put you know throw together in a in a in a suspenser in a kind of a you know a, a post World War for hire yeah no a suspenser uh, in a, a World War Two kind of a post World War Two made in nineteen fifty one so it's you know post World War Two beginning of the Cold War uh, it's uh, it, it, but it, but you know what it works man it really works uh, Henry Acosta really kind of finds the tension, finds the chemistry, and makes them work really well together on the screen, and it's, and it's beautiful. I'm also a big fan of Henry Hathaway's 23 Paces to Baker Street with Van Johnson and Vera Miles. Um, this was made in 1956. Uh, Henry Hathaway, primarily known for um, uh, westerns, but he did deviate every once in a while into uh, things like thrillers, like this one, and um, he always did a great job. And the idea here is that you have an American writer who happens to be blind, and he's in London, and uh, he stumbles into this, uh, this, uh, this web of intrigue, we shall say, which makes it start to feel a little bit like a kind of a rear window knockoff. Like, okay, he's not in a wheelchair, he's blind. And it is a little bit, but it's clever in its own way, and uh, I appreciate it. It's produced by, we should point out, Henry Efren, Nora Efren's father. And uh, it's good solid, uh, good, solid stuff. Great supporting performances as well, especially by uh, Cecil Parker, Patricia Laffin. And then the last two here, A-P-E, Ape. This is one of these really ridiculous 3D movies from a previous era when they still had not learned that 3D was junk, uh, this being the 1976 revival of 3D. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a guy in an ape suit, man. There's just, it's, it's ridiculous. It's silly. But as, a, as kind of a, a kitsch throwback to the era, you know, you can, you can watch this in 3D if you still have a 3D set. And, yeah, fine, whatever. I, it, it's, it's a silly movie. 3D TVs? 3D. They're on their way out. On their way out. Over. And then Deluge. This is a pre-code film from 1933. Very interesting. Uh, This is also from the Lobster Library. Uh, Beautifully restored. Has a great commentary by Richard Harlan Smith, which really, really explains why this is important. And um, it has another feature film on it from 1934 starring uh, Peggy Shannon, who's in Deluge, called Back Page. But that's just kind of that's an extra. What's so interesting about this is this is a uh, this is about a a, a um, earthquakes that create a giant tidal wave that is going all around the world. It's the most ridiculous impossibility that that you would have an earthquake that would create a tidal wave that would wipe out New York City. It's absurd, but um, it's the aftermath of that that makes this film really really interesting because it's. Um, it then becomes this really intriguing, very early post-apocalyptic film made under pre-code conditions. And uh, in 1933, we are, of course, on the verge of World War II. It's not an imminent thing, but everybody knows what's happening in Germany. Everybody knows what's happening in Italy. Everybody kind of sees the writing on the wall. Japan is in Manchuria, and you feel the weight of all of that when you're watching this. And it creates a very interesting backdrop to this film, uh, especially considering that it is a pre-code era. 
uh, movie. So uh, it's really, really interesting where it goes. It's a, it's a largely forgotten film that really deserves to be rediscovered, and I'm glad that it's out again. So Deluge from 1933, really, really well uh, worth rediscovering, directed by Felix Feist, who went to do a lot of kind of schlocky stuff like uh, Donovan's Brain in the years after. So there it is. All right, Mark, um, you know what? Pesto cake, that's what? Pesto cake, for sure. Uh, before we go, uh, I'm going to make mention of one foreign film. We didn't get around to foreign films. What are you doing to me? Because the Oscars just went by, and I'm praying that when we come back next week and talk about who won the Oscars, I'm really, really hoping that Salesman won foreign language film and that it did not go to Tony Erdman because I freaking you hate Tony. Tony I hate Tony Erdman. So we get, it's a three-hour German movie with a guy with, with nutty, nutty professor teeth. Hilarious. Not funny. Uh, Marin Ada, who directed that, also did a film called The Forest for the Trees. I want to get this out of the way, because this is equally annoying. Look, 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 it's funny. See, they drew glasses on the woman and then could What is it with her and teeth? <laughs> Got an artwork on here where you mark out the woman's two... Hey, look, here. Uh, this, this is about a woman who becomes a teacher and, um winds up sort of struggling through all of the ups and downs of and the unpredictable aspects of being a, te- a school teacher and how do you find joy in life. In short, she basically is the daughter from Tony Erdman. So, you know, Maranata just cannot leave alone certain themes that just are better left alone. I don't find this film charming at all, yet somehow this had some festival exposure around the world. If you know... Why Marin Ada is considered a great filmmaker? Please email us at godsatdigigods.com and let us know because we just can't. We don't. I don't get it. All right. With that, we are done this week, and we will be back to talk about the Oscars and lots of cool new movies next week. 